Chris is the one that's, uh, I t we were walking and he, uh, several weeks back, and sometimes you, you guys say something and it may seem like I don't respond, or it may be that you've just frightened me so bad that... <laughs> And he asked me, he said, why don't you say something about sacrifice and sacrifices? Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's been several weeks, I think, that you said that. And I, the topic is so huge, uh, but I wanted to, to approach it today. Um, I'm going to make a statement here and, uh, that sacrifice is universal. And by universal, I mean, I'll, I'll break this down for you. I think that religions, this world's religions, without qualification, that sacrifice or is either presently a part of the religion or sacrifice is part of the history of the religion. Uh, now, you know, in Japan, it may not, when you come to Shintoism or other things, they, they have offerings that they give. It may not be clear that historically, you know, that in both Buddhism and Shintoism, that's there. I'm basing this partly on Rene Girard, who I'll come to in a minute, who is going to make a similar claim. Okay, that's the number one sense in which I think sacrifice is universal. It's in every religion in some way or another. Number two is that people without qualification would sacrifice the other. And these two things are actually interconnected. But what I want to say is that the religions are that way because the people are that way. That is that sacrifice does not begin as a formal religious system. Uh, rather, it begins as a interior problem of human beings uh, I'll unfold what I, well uh, in a sense you, you already know what I mean that we would sacrifice the other or that masochistically we would sacrifice you know Paul's description in Romans 7 Rene Girard is going to tell us that all myth this is his you know entry is about sacrifice is about a murder actually, that uh, is covered up by a kind of myth, mythologi mythologizing and turning it uh, into, you know, a, a, a scapegoating sacrifice. Uh, if you don't believe me up to now, you think, well, surely that can't be the case. I think that biblically, this is the picture that unfolds with Genesis 3, you move into Cain and Abel, and what Paul is recounting, in, or Paul is uh, talking about in Romans 7, is that this sacrifice then is almost inherent, that there is this kind of death-dealing system. And so religious violence, you know, this is the new atheists, they would accuse the religion, oh, it's religion that causes violence. Uh, you know, is, is Islam is the Muslim religion inherently violent? What I'd say is, well, people are inherently violent, and that may manifest itself in various religious systems. Now, you, as you know, my work has been in partly in psychoanalysis, 
And in a Freudian, Lacanian, Zizakian system, uh, masochism and sadism, which are just systems of sacrifice, are the coin of the realm. That's what's up and running. Now my last piece of evidence here is that bad Christian theology, I think, is itself a kind of confirmation of what I'm saying. Divine satisfaction and penal substitution. Why are we so committed to that? I think that in part it's a pervasive picture of the commitment to the notion of sacrifice. So that's why this is just such a huge topic. Um, and I'm, I know what you were thinking, Chris. You're thinking Old Testament sacrifices. And I'm coming there. Um, but I'm setting the scene. And let me set the scene. I'm going to read a little. This is from a manuscript uh, from 1349. And it's during the time of the Black Death. After that came a false, treacherous, and contemptible swine. That was shameful Israel, the wicked and disloyal, who hated good and loved everything evil who gave so much gold and silver and promises to Christians, who then poisoned several rivers and fountains that had been clear and pure so that many lost their lives. For, ever used them, for whoever used them died suddenly. Certainly ten times one hundred thousand died from it in country and in city. What they discovered then in 1349 was the Jews were the cause of the Black Death. Apparently they were poisoning the rivers and the wells. Okay, that's the scene. That is, there's this uh, plague and they accuse the Jews. Same manuscript goes on to describe. Then finally came this moral calamity. He who sits on high sees far, who governs and provides for everything, God, did not want this treachery to remain hidden. He revealed it and made it so generally known that they lost their lives and possessions. Then every Jew was destroyed. Some hanged, others burned. Some were drowned, others beheaded with an axe or sword. And many Christians died together with them in shame. This is from the judgment of the king of Navarre. Okay, what, tell me what's happening here. Did the Jews cause the Black Death, the plague? They scapegoated them, right? And this is a, you know, and, and by the way, you understand this historically really occurred that they, first of all, the, the plague and then the Jews were blamed for it and many Jews, uh, as he's describing, thousands, maybe tens of thousands were killed for it. This same phenomena will occur again and again in society. I have I used to work for a Jewish rabbi in uh, university, and uh, one of the things I did was I uh, did an examination of all the persecution of the Jews, and what I came to the conclusion uh, uh, was that the Jews are the most persecuted people in the history of the world. That is, this scapegoating that tends to occur tends to focus on them. All right? 
Now, I think this is important as we, I'm going to talk about Old Testament sacrifices here in a minute. Um, and what I'm going to say about them, we have to set in the context of the, the, who the Jews are historically. Their sacrificial system in some ways resembles the sacrificial systems of other religions. But I would say that in important elements, it's different. And the, the history of the Jews and their history of sacrifice is connected then to the fact that they're scapegoated and that ultimately in the New Testament, it's Christ who will be scapegoated. They will all turn on Christ. And as they're doing it, he exposes what they're doing, right? He says, you know, you're plotting to kill me. You're, I'm, I'm innocent. His last words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. That is that Jesus is the ultimate scapegoat, who, though in this instance, is revealing, exposing the whole mechanism of scapegoating. Let me give you another. This is just another religious myth and see if you can tell what's happening in it. This is from the Aztecs. They say that before there was day in the world, the gods came together in that place which is named Tikhon. I don't know how to say it. They said to one another, O oh gods, who will have the burden of lighting the world? Then to these words answered a god named Tectizatol, and he said, I shall take the burden of lighting the world. Then once more the gods spoke, and they said, Who will be another? Then they looked at one another and deliberated on who the other should be, and none of them dared offer himself for that office. All were afraid and declined. Okay, they're looking for the, somebody to be the, the sun. The sun in the sky, right? One of the gods, to whom no one was paying attention, and who was covered with pustules, did not speak, but listened to what the other gods were saying. And the others spoke to him and said to him, You be the one who is to give light, little pustule-covered one. And right willingly he obeyed what they commanded, and he answered, Thankfully I accept what you have commanded me to do. Let it be as you say. What happened? What do you think might have happened? They picked the weird one. Okay, they picked the strange one who may have had... In other words, what I'm describing, what Gerard is doing, and I'm going to come back to it in a minute. He's saying that these myths that occur, you know, like the, the scapegoating of the Jews. Scapegoating of the Jews, we can read that manuscript and we say, well, of course they didn't. No, they didn't cause the Black Death. That was, you know... Uh, you know, the more recent history in the United States of uh, the, the, you know, uh, scapegoating black people and hanging them, uh, similar condition. But what does not happen is what Gerard is saying happens in a myth. In a myth, he's saying there, there is a historical event that occurs, but the myth covers it up and deifies the one who got murdered, the one who got sacrificed. And so the little pustule-covered one kept the sun rising or became the sun in some way. I don't know if you've seen Apocalypto, the 
Mel Gibson movie, you know, they're Aztecs, isn't it? Is it? Uh, they're always sacrificing to keep the sun going up. Okay, that's that's just a touching a little bit then on myth. Um, I'll come on Gerard and myth. Um, in the history of religious and ethnic persecution, the Jews, is there a significance to this widespread scapegoating persecution of the Jews? And what, I want to raise a series of questions and come to answer them, hopefully. Could it be that this has something to do with their religious identity culminating in the sacrifice of Christ? That is, that what's happening among the Jews and culminating in Christ in regard to sacrifice is interconnected, but not interconnected in the way that the history of the world's religions. In other words, it's not just another sacrifice. Because with this sacrifice, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, sacrifice is going to end. In Gerard's point, you know, the scapegoating mechanism will be undone. Is there something about Jewish sacrifices that causes them not to scapegoat, but to be scapegoated? Part of this is obvious, you know, the identity of the Jews. Why are they the scapegoated ones? Because their religion is one in which they never fully integrate into a society, right? They're always, even if they're just like everybody else, their religion is such that they remain outsiders and that this makes people suspicious of them. And then you have to ask, well, what is the unifying factor in any religious or any cultural system? And Gerard's answer is, well, the, the, the scapegoating mechanism. But we could, if you don't, you know, we could just say, well, in some way, identity with the culture through sacrifices, think here in the case of the United States. Uh, you know, who are heroes? Well, those who would lay down their lives for the nation. And so in some way, as Christians, we stand outside or st should stand outside of the sacrificial system. And we'll be, you know, suspicions will be cast upon us. And the tendency will be that we will be scapegoated. The Hebrew religion, I'm going to answer my question now. The Hebrew religion is not a religion of the tomb. It's not a religion of death. Death is not a passageway, and the ancestors and gods do not reside in a reified death. When you sacrifice something, the idea is that in some way you're appeasing the gods, that is what we're going to encounter in Anselm's doctrine of divine satisfaction. Propitiation, you understand that is the universal reason that people and things get sacrificed in religions. What Anselm has done is just incorporate a pagan understanding into Christianity and converted Christianity. I don't mean to blame Anselm for this, but basically Christianity has been converted into another pagan religion in regard to sacrifices. What is taking place in a sacrifice? You imagine you're feeding the gods, or and you imagine that death is itself eternal life. You know, uh, in Japan, the ancestors, when they die, they don't really die. 
that, but they pass into being gods. And so the gods are the dead. And I believe this is the universal, the most universal of religions, and that is ancestor worship. What happens to the ancestors? Well, they don't, they're still here with us. So in, uh, in the Old Testament, you know, the covenant with death uh, is pictured as this death denial. Think of Genesis 3-4. You won't die, you'll be like gods. So all other peoples have a formalized covenant with death through religious myth and sacrifice. That's the thing that in Isaiah and Ezekiel the Jews are falling into. They're falling into this pagan religion. They're going out to the graveyards and sacrificing, and they're refusing God. I think what they're going through is the universal predicament. What does the Old Testament do? It exposes the, the, the history of sacrifice and murder and idolatry. So I would suggest that Jewish identity is in a very different place in regard to blood sacrifices. Okay, I've set the scene. Now let me move to Old Testament. Jewish sacrifice was not for payment to the gods, as in pagan religion, in spite of the fact that many people will read that back into there. You know, after we get divine satisfaction with Anselm of Canterbury, they're going to read the Old Testament as part of that system. I think that's just a mistake. Jewish sacrifices were a dedication to God. Sacrifices were, you know, they were, they were performed in times of thanksgiving, rejoicing, as well as in times of sin. But it was never simply a ritualized blood payment to satisfy guilt uh, as prescribed by the law. In fact, most of the sacrifices uh, were for unwitting sin. I'll come back to unconscious sin. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. The life of any creature was thought to be in its blood. What's the significance there? Well, if you put this with the worshiper's symbolic identification through laying on of hands with the animal to be sacrificed, and then the priest takes the blood of the animal which the worshiper is symbolically identified with, and he places it on the horns of the altar where God is thought to reside. This wasn't, you know, a, a propitiation. This was a ritual dedication and self-giving of the worshiper to God. The blood was, okay, I'm giving my life, as Paul will talk about, not to die, but I'm going to dedicate my life to God, a kind of living sacrifice. That was the, the Jewish difference. Uh, obviously, Jewish sacrifice does not appease the anger of God through death. Rather, it dedicates life to God. The ritual did not involve the destruction of an animal in place of killing a person. Rather, the life of the animal, and with it the life of the worshiper, was given to God. And rather than dying, uh, the animal's blood goes to God, representing that the life of the person, you know, he's going to live his life for God. Uh, 
we could call these sacrifices sort of acts of prayer, and the temple then was called the house of prayer because that's where these sacrifices took place. All everything that happens in the temple is an act of prayer, inclusive of sacrifice. So in no way was it a, a, a satisfaction, you know, or you know, atonement, in which the blood or death is thought to satisfy a legal penalty. That's paganism. Uh, it is rather a, a self-dedication to God. Now to come back, inadvertent sin or unconscious sin accounts for most of the blood sacrifices. Uh, to state it bluntly, the, the sacrifices address the unconscious. Uh, the sins dealt with are primarily, this is Leviticus, you know, several places. You understand when Paul describes the sacrifice of Christ that it's for the inadvertent sin. In Romans chapter 8, when he says Christ sacrificed himself or laid down his life, it is a reference back to this particular nature of sacrifice. Um, There's a reason for that, and I think Romans 7 is the reason, but I'll, I'll come back to that too. So for the most serious and comprehensive sins, blood is not even involved. Uh, Leviticus 16 describes the ritual whereby the scapegoat is sent off. The scapegoat, if any of you listen to Frank and I's, uh, it's actually mainly Frank, and I'm uh, trying to keep up with it. But he, he says, well, no, it's the scapegoat is the, the goat that is not killed. The scapegoat is specifically the one that's sent out all the end of the wilderness and all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins is driven away into the wilderness, bearing on itself all their iniquities, I'm reading from Leviticus 16, to a barren region. So the scapegoat's not killed, but it bears the sins away. This is precisely the opposite, right, of scapegoating as we read it in, you know, the the way it tends to happen in human society. Um... There is no, the element of satisfying a legal penalty was not a dimension of the Hebrew ritual sacrifice. Thus, the appearance or use of sacrificial terminology or imagery uh, in the New Testament, you know, our tendency is to say, oh, Jesus was sacrificed, and then to imagine the Old Testament sacrifices were for propitiation. And that's not what they were for. That's not what's happening there. Um, So the sacrifices, by the way, were never an end in themselves. This is the other thing we have to do, is set the sacrifices in the midst of the history of the Jews. Uh, The prophets are going to continually call this system into question. Um, In in, uh, 721 B.C. uh, E., you know, the uh, history of Israel, uh, the northern kingdom is destroyed and the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 and the fall of the temple. And the prophets call this a kind of judgment that's passed on Israel. Uh, The prophets expected no help from God through the sacrificial cult. 
Rather, they saw it as an expression of the falsehood and the lying, the mendacity, uh, which was responsible for Israel's sin. In other words, uh, Amos writes, I hate, and he's voicing God, I hate, I despise your festivals. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And in contrast to these empty sacrifices, what does he want? This is the famous you know, verse that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. quotes so powerfully. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an overflowing stream. That's the point of being a, the children of God. And the sacrifices were interfering or not helping anyway. The prophets were going to, are going to call for love and justice to reign in place of the sacrifices. We can get rid of the sacrifices. They're not important. What's important is love, justice. Hosea says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Isaiah writes, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Isn't it ironic? that in a New Testament Christianity, we would imagine that Christ is a sacrifice that is given, he died so that we do not have to, in a particular understanding of Christianity, and that the death of Christ then is removed from any ethical obligation for those who would adhere to it. What I'm saying is there's two kinds of Christianity the one that would say he died and we don't have to do that. The other says, no, he modeled sacrificial service and it's tied to an ethic. So you cannot appeal to the Old Testament to imagine that there is some sort of divine satisfaction or propitiation that's removed from ethics. Jeremiah uh, questioned even whether the sacrifices originated with God. For in the day that I brought your ancestors out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to them or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk only in the way that I command you, so that it may be well with you. Now Gerard wants to say that the Old Testament sacrifices are no different than any other. What I would say is, well, no, this the very uh, uh, idea of sacrifice is different, and their attitude to the sacrifices are different. That is, what's being described is these things aren't essential. What's essential is love, mercy, justice, you know, care for the oppressed. And the sacrifices were then to be a support of that history. So I think Gerard's theory is a, is a, is a good theory, and his reading, you understand, Rene Girard becomes a Christian because he sees 
in the Old and the New Testament, the exposure of what he has discovered as this universal scapegoating. We would always, you know, create the scapegoat, the foreigner, the pustule-covered one, the Jew, uh, you know, the immigrant, the uh, they're the ones running. It's those homosexuals. It's the there will be an infinite, no end to scapegoating. What's happening in Christianity is the exposure of that and saying, you know, that the scapegoating ceases. But what I would say is what's happening in the Old Testament. And Gerard says the same thing. You know, that the Old Testament is already that when Cain kills Abel, when Joseph's brothers would kill Joseph, there's no covering up these murders. In the scapegoating thing, what would happen is it would be covered up and then it would be mythologized. You know, we would be worshiping Abel because his... But, but we don't worship Abel. We recognize that he died at the hands of Cain. Um, so there is no mechanism in Judaism to pay a penalty. Ritual sacrifice is, uh, you know, in no way attains forgiveness. Sacrifices of in, in and of themselves, they don't placate God. Rather, what pleases God is obedience, and uh, then, if you're obedient, then the, the sacrifices are a, a kind of ritualistic capacity to come to God, you know, that we can enter in uh, into his presence in the temple. And so the absence of this mechanical effect, I think, makes the Hebrew sacrifices completely different from any other. And to read that mechanical effect into the death of Christ, I think, is one of the huge travesties in the history of theology. Because that's the very point that Christ, or even in the Old Testament, but Christ is, is attempting to overcome. So I think if we set the Jewish sacrifices in their history, uh, that we can get this, that um, if you think of, you know, this is the thing that astonished Gerard when he discovers the scapegoating mechanism. He thought that when he picked up the Bible, it would just be more religious myth, because that was what everybody in his generation was saying. Oh, it's just more myth. Well, this is the opposite of myth, he says. Because here, you you know who killed Abel. You know Lamech's a murderer. You know that Joseph's brothers would kill him. You know that Jacob is a trickster. Uh, that the whole history is on the basis, you know, Jewish history is not on the basis of violence, but in fact, just the opposite. There's the exposure of this violence and a doing away with murder. I mean, that's the whole thing. That's the command that's given to the generation of Noah and that's carried out uh, through the Jews. Um, so think here of Solomon and Solomon's wisdom. Do you know when Solomon's wisdom was proclaimed as everybody recognized it? Except the baby, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. They, the two prostitutes bring the baby, and they're both claiming the baby is theirs. And Solomon proposes a sacrifice. 
right? He says, let's split the baby in two. And the woman says, yeah, that's a good idea. The other one says, no, I'll sacrifice my rights to the child. Mm -hmm. And so what we're seeing in Israel is not the sacrifice of violence and propitiation, but we're seeing in, you know, this is the lesson Joseph's brothers learned, that they would sacrifice themselves at the end of the story for Joseph. That the woman who would sacrifice her rights to the child is the the true mother. Uh, That Abraham, is his whole life is a picture of the willingness to lay down, you know, it's Isaac, but actually it's Abraham's ability to propagate his own name. And what I would say about what's partly what's happening in Israel and in the Old Testament is the Jews have an insight into the desire that's driving people. That once you understand that what drives people is jealousy, rage, anger, you know, this malicious sacrifice, Abraham will be able to read the king before the king knows what's happening. Jacob is the trickster, but he's a trickster because he can read people's intentions uh i think that's true throughout you know uh jacob manipulates esau because he can he knows esau's desires and um so in the sacrifices uh that they're pointed to what is unconscious think here of romans 7 you know that what is unconscious is a reflection back to Genesis 3. You won't die. You'll be like gods. That is the reification of death. Um, Think here of the uh, Columbine boys that went in. Uh, I guess they were bullied as high school students. And so they decided to just go in and wipe out school. But did they go in and pick out the bullies and shoot the bullies? No, they just randomly killed people. As far as I know, they killed no one that had bullied them. Mm-hmm. Uh, in shame and rage and anger, we lose sight of the adversary, right? It, the scapegoat d- d- may have nothing to do with anything. The Jews didn't cause the Black Death. The Koreans, you know, were accused in the Kanto earthquake of starting the fires that burned down Tokyo, and the many Koreans were slaughtered. Um, This just happens again and again. They didn't start the fires any more than the Jews. Uh, So what happens in this rage is that there is a, they, they focus upon, they seize upon a surrogate victim. Uh, and this is what happens with the case of Christ, right? That they imagine that he's guilty and that he is from hell, that he's of the devil. And yet throughout, even Pilate pronounces him innocent. He says from the cross, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Um, He's exposing then uh, what's happening in this tendency of human anger, rage, to find the evil in in the one that's scapegoated. Uh, And this, we we live in a fairly peaceful time. 
But in the history of the world, dissension, rivalries, jealousies, the cycles of revenge are really what consume people's lives. Either literally they're killed or they live in continual fear of vengeance and blood, you know, bloodletting. And the purpose of the sacrifice is to restore harmony to the community. Gerard's point is the only way you can have a community of people is if you control the violence. And the way you control the violence is by through uh, directing the violence to a scapegoat. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you can let out, you know, it's a kind of formalized aggression. We maybe in this country we, we witnessed it in the witch trials, you know. Oh, it's those evil old women, you know, that are doing this. And the whole community can get caught up in this. And in the midst of this thing, no one is capable of saying the truth, right? No one stands up and says, wait a minute, I don't think these women ride brooms and, you know. It just seems obvious once you're outside of it. No, the Jews didn't poison the rivers. No, the Koreans didn't start the fires in Tokyo. But when you're in the midst of this rage, you know, you, you it's almost irresistible. Think here of Peter in the courtyard of the high priest. He joins a circle of those who are really wanting the death of Christ. And suddenly... He's dispossessed of, he, he does, he, you know, says, oh, I do nothing about him. I don't know this man. He denies Christ. And I think the point is that that's the, the that in the midst of this anger, rage, and violence, um, that there, it's an undifferentiated violence. It just sweeps over. And human culture, if you think here of Babel, as kind of the beginning of culture, and maybe even uh, this this may sound odd, but in a sense, real, organized violence is probably better than unorganized violence, right? That is, the religions may in fact play a role in the creation of the very possibility of a culture holding together. Mm-hmm. That the sacrifices. This is Gerard's point. The sacrifices make culture possible. Um, uh, What's happening, though, in the Bible is that, and this is Gerard, is that they consistently tell the story from the standpoint of the innocent victim. We know Abel's voice cries cries out, his blood cries out. Uh, We know that Joseph's you know, is a victim of his brothers. We can hear, you know, the, the Hebrew slaves, that God hears their pleas. And by focusing on the innocence of the victim, the Bible exposes, you know, the sacred justification of violence. The suppose, you know, sacred should be here in, the, uh, in, in quotes. That, and this undermines the, the power of the scapegoat. Uh, Christ exposes violence and the nature of violence, and that we can read the New Testament in that fashion as as opening up scapegoating. Now, what tends to happen in our understanding of sin uh, in the traditional doctrine is we've mystified it. In original sin, we say, well, we don't understand it. What I think 
is we need to take account of is the individual and the social aspect of sin. Uh, and the idea, first of all, I, I think it's not just Gerard. I, I think Gerard is one step, but there are many ways that, and this is what's happening in the Old and the New Testament, is that the nature of sin as it exists in society is explicable. We can say this is the th- way this thing works. This is the logic of this system. And so it's neither, you know, a kind of, as Augustine would put it, a kind of genetic thing that's passed on through human sex, nor is it is it a mystery. But we can describe it, and I think that's what's supposed to happen in the New Testament, is that we begin to lay out and we say that it's not a mystery. And, and the danger is that if we mystify sin, this becomes part of the problem. Uh, it proper, and that's what's happened in divine satisfaction. We've taken the problem of sin and incorporated it as if the problem is the solution. Scapegoating, propitiation, violence is not the, the, the answer. That's the problem. And so by mystifying sin, we've taken the problem and incorporated it into the answer. Uh, in Calvin's explanation, you know, Calvin is just building on Augustine. He attributes the propagation of sin to divine ordinance, uh, that God needed it, or natural inheritance. You understand the same thing's going to happen with Anselm. Who killed Christ in Anselm's picture of the death of Christ? It's not exactly clear. You know, you don't, Anselm's not going to say God did it, but actually that's what he, in the end, is giving. He's saying that God is responsible for the death of Christ. And in the, the pervasive doctrine of the atonement, that's what we have that God becomes the ultimate scapegoater. He becomes the, the origin of violence himself. And the result you know, of Calvin's understanding, according to James McClendon, is that sin is not subject to explanation, but becomes the lens through which salvation is interpreted. What I my understanding is that sin is a primordial lie. So it's no accident that we continue to be confused as much as we're sinners by the lie. Sin is a primordial lie uh, that is over and against the truth, the communion, the community, the communication of a Trinitarian, you know, our participation in the Trinity. So if you think, you know, the word of God is the ultimate reality, the word of man displacing that reality in a lie, that's sin. God is peace, sin is violence. You know, just go through John's dualisms here. Uh, So sin distorts access to reality. But what we have in Scripture in Revelation, that's why it's important to connect Uh, revelation to salvation sin is not a mystery Um, it's rather exposed for for what it truly is Uh, this is N.T. Wright the law could not deliver life but God has done what the law 
could not do by sending his son. And Christ has ushered in the life promised by the law. The way God did this was to condemn, condemn sin, not Jesus, though it was in the flesh of Jesus that sin was put to death. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Wright says, this is some way from saying, as many have, that God desired to punish someone and decided to punish Jesus on everyone else's behalf. That's the typical uh, doctrine. I've done a very quick introduction, but do you have any questions or problems with Are you going to talk about it more? Yeah, I, I, as, <laughs> I, can, I can continue. I touched on several things very quickly. Just to, First of all, I really didn't fully explain Gerard. And if you're interested in a fuller explanation, I can do that. The other thing is that um, we need to, I, I think, clarify. There, there is discussion of sacrifice in the New Testament. But once we get clear that the sacrifice is not propitiation or divine satisfaction or penal substitution, that was never what sacrifice was for a Jew. That's what pagan religion does. And my point would be Judaism is already a departure from paganism. And in that sense, Christ fulfills the sacrifices. So we can look at those passages where sacrifice is talked about, and then we can re reinterpret them in what is called Christus Victor, you know, that Christ is defeating evil, Christ is overcoming sin. The part that I would add to this, the traditional, the usual Christus Victor, the, the, where, you know, what is it that Christ is doing in uh, defeating evil. Well, evil is clearly in the powers that be. Rome. Evil is in the religious powers in Israel. The Pharisees, the Sadducees. Uh, and that's what we get in Christus Victor, that Christ died at the hands of evil men. Right? That he was murdered. And so we have four murder stories. But I think we can take that one step further and say that the evil is not simply out there. It's not simply the principalities and powers. But this violence, this sacrificial, masochistic, sadistic system is one that is within all of us. And that that's what Paul is... You know, Paul's doing both things in Romans. He's describing, uh, you know, how Christ has fulfilled the law, but he's also showing at a personal level that it transforms the individual. Why did Christ die? Did he die to satisfy the wrath of God? No, there's nothing like that in there. He died to transform persons. But the way that you transform persons is, is not simply socially, nor is it simply personally. It's neither just the individual, but it's corporately, which does not leave out the private individual, but we understand that we're transformed 
uh, as we enter into a corporate group. So there is within us the orientation to death due to a lie that is not just there in scapegoating informal religion, but it's there in our own attitudes towards other people. In other words, what is happening in religion is just a projection, I think, of what we would always do. And so I think in the usual Christus Victor, we may get caught up in the social evil and the picture of a corporate evil. And I think what we need, you know, I think that's not wrong, but what we need to bring into it is the psychological aspect of this. To understand that the orientation to death that produces violence as a kind of necessity, that's just who we are. And to be changed up is to be converted up. So I could I could hit all of those points more today. I just thought I'd. Have.